96-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids! Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. I am Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. And after the cock up that was the last couple of weeks, we're, we're back in. The we're right back in the groove. Yeah. We're back. Know what we're doing. Everything's back. Everything's scheduled. We know how things are going to pan out between now and Christmas. The hand of glory's time fluctuation has been fixed. Yeah. So I do apologise for that if it confused you as much as it confused me. <laughs> um, no preamble this um, week. I've not done anything interesting. Really? Merely live my life. Yeah. The only way I know how. Still record Fantasticast. Yes, yes, that still goes on. Just that's for you, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> well done. I'm very impressed. Who are you? I'm Michael Ireland. Did you say that? Yes. I think oh, I did. Okay, okay, fair enough. This just shows how much attention I pay. Emails because last week, but one, we didn't do emails. Was it? Yes. It was last week for us. Because yeah, it was last week for us because we I. I, I was going to say we messed up, but yeah. I, I messed up, not you. Our first email is called Maximum Carnage Part 1. That seems so long ago now. It does. From Rob Stubbs. Hi, Rob. Hello, Mr. and Mr. Leyland. I like that. Yeah. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Leyland. Tibbs. Leyland. Leyland Tibbs. I like those Mr. and Mr. Leyland. Well, you're not a master anyway. I feel grown up. Mm. Or a beta. Maybe he brought this. I don't know. <laughs> I am not a long-time listener, as long-term seems to me to require at least a five-year commitment. Well, we haven't been on the earth for five years, so we so forgive you, you could for... very well be a long-term yeah. by, by our terms, you could be a long-term listener, because yeah. we haven't yet completed a five-year mission. Uh, we wish, would have finished our voyage after five years. We could do. That, we, that would be... I, I often... I have often thought yeah. that maybe we should do five years if we keep the schedule... Yeah. We keep it up. We do five years. We do a last episode. And at the very end of the episode, we just say, right, and that was the last episode of Hair Kids Comics. We thank everyone that we want to thank. And we just <laughs> go. And we shut down the Facebook page. And we, and we just disappear. Five years. There was the show. That was it. We move. We leave. I have thought that would be the best way to go. Okay. That's my... That's how I would end but the show. But you wouldn't be able to talk to Scott or Michael or Stephen or anything. Or I'd any still be able to talk friends. to them. Or you set up your own uh, Facebook page. Yeah, I may absolutely, you know. By the moment, it just exists. But that, that's how I would go out. R- rather than uh, in, like me being in the in New York and yeah, the Cuban no, no, school no, 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 Skype. No, no, no. When we can't do it like this, yeah. that's when the show ends. Because I've said before, this is finite, isn't it? Yeah. We, we, I don't see us doing this when I'm 55 and you're 20. No, you'll be 23 years. <laughs> God, God, and you're 32. Don't say that, man. I don't see, I don't see it going on for that long. Mm. I envision a point where we just get to the point where we, we've said everything we're going to say. I would go out like Bill Hicks. What? Of cancer? No, forget the whole cancer <laughs> thing. I would go out with the, I've said everything I want to say now. 
Goodbye. Yep. I just go. Oh, but this show wasn't broadcast, so I'll have to do another show. Yeah. Well, that's not to say there may not be spin-offs. Yeah. Or sequels. We couldn't do movies. What, just a when movie podcast? When I say podcast? movies, I mean, like, the Hulk TV show. What? Or Star Trek. In what? I don't so, think okay. Okay. Star Trek okay. and the Hulk ran for a series. Yes. And then every once in a while they came back and did a movie. Oh, so we'll so finish. So every now, I see what you're saying. We come back and do movie episodes. Not. We get the gang all back together. Yeah. And we do a reunion movie that isn't quite as good as the series used to be. No. <laughs> Even though the special effects are better. But there's a bit well, of stock footage in with there. Thor's hammer. Yeah, it's like when they brought the Dukes of Hazard back and John Schneider still looked pretty good. And then you're looking at Tom Wolpert and going. He's never going to be able to fit through that general Lee Winder now. <laughs> anyway, sorry, we interrupted Rob's email. <laughs> we do that an awful lot, though. It, it, it's become part of our checklist now. It was unintentional this time. We just got off. Interrupted someone's email. Rob's email continues. Nor have I been listening, starting at the beginning of Hey Kids Comics Season 1. Why not? They're all back up there on the Two True Freaks Network. There is no there excuse There is anymore. no excuse for not checking out our early... Classics. Yeah, I, I hesitated to use that word. <laughs> Our earlier old ones. Yeah. The old shows. <laughs> Classics just means old, UK it? UK Radio Bronze. Yeah, I quite like that. <laughs> Radio Bronze. <laughs> um, sorry, Rob. I can't even be sure where I started to get to your show originally, as I tend to bounce around a lot, like Chuck Tane. But unlike that guy, I'm not married to Luana Durga. I don't know if I pronounce Luana right, though. No, but that, that Chuck Tain did pretty decent for a fat guy who can bounce <laughs> about, uh, around walls. He is spoofed very, very well in The Boys, isn't he? Yeah. What do they call him in The Boys? I'm not you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob continues, As I listened, I remembered all the reasons why the 90s was a truly horrible decade for comics, whereas Jury just became a carnage fest for its own sake, instead of advancing a plot or a character arc or introducing an interesting new character. Carnage isn't even a good, scurry, crazy serial killer, as if I was him. Not that I would be a serial killer, as far as you guys know. I would have dragged the doctor, psychiatrist along with me to make them plead for each person before I would kill them. Then I would hideously maim them, thus leading to a creation of a nemesis at a future point who has to decide between the idea of rehabilitation versus some of the ideas some people just can't be saved. Actually, that sounds better than maximum <laughs> carnage. I think this series became a reason to just bring more random characters into a story where they couldn't be dumped out of the story, making an already pointless story even more pointless. As to the black cat costume, I appreciated it, but thought there must have been some sort of adhesive involved. <laughs> that nipple adhesive. Yeah. Peter Parker is a horrible husband, which leads to the writers making Mary Jane act horrible in response, so it looks like it is both their fault instead of just Peter's. That's just my opinion as to the reason why, after they got married, that the sweet and lovable Mary Jane Watson became this thoughtful sort of witchy party girl when she's not busy nagging Peter about his responsibilities as her new husband. I wish I'd picked a better set of books to write my first letter email to you guys over in that country called England, but if I put off again, then a letter email won't happen. The art in some of these books are good, though, so at least I've not been completely negative. Having mandered through this... No. I have meandered around enough, so this is the end. Hopefully I will find time to write another email at some future point where I am largely positive about a comic book or writer or artist. From your friend you've never re- met in real life, R.L. Stubbs Jr. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Mm-hmm. We appreciated that you emailed in. non I couldn't say that bit. I used to do Latin, why is it? You used to do Latin, but you don't know what that means. Right. Estes is... Yes. Amicus is friends. Yes. Is that the best you can do? That's the best I can do. You don't know what verum means? No, I do not. Alright, should we we hit some internet? Out of my two years of doing Latin, all I remember is um, Ego Samebrius Power. 
Is that all you remember? I'm a drunken peacock. <laughs> I bet that comes useful in everyday conversation. Yeah. Um, I go some for Rocky to Leo. Yes. Uh, thanks, Rob. Yeah. Uh, don't wait till we we do something you don't like to email in next time. Email about something you do like. Anyway, our next email, the title of which is "Greetings from the site of America's biggest tea party." I like to think that that, that is just a party where they all drink tea for a day instead of coffee. Yeah. But I like—I I suspect that's 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 not true. Yeah. Messrs. Leyland and Leyland. The email begins from Chris Tyler, the her metal hero himself. Hello, Chris. It's nice to hear from him. Hey guys, Chris Tyler, the her metal hero from the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror. Here, I love it when they plug their own podcast in their email. Yeah, I always thought it was really good. Very clever of them because. That is, accepting that my incompetence yes. won't remember to plug their podcasts. So if I mention it in their email, they've done it for me. Yeah. And I appreciate that. So you don't have that. to put a promo on that? Cause I appreciate that. Yeah. Because I'm useless, as has been established many times before. Here writing in for the very first time, basically to say thank you for putting out such a great podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. What can I say that hasn't been said before? You lads have been keeping me entertained for quite some time now, and I'm mad at myself for waiting until your show was incorporated by Demanzo Core to listen. Well, that Demanzo Core merger, <laughs> that Demanzo Core merger was was very rough on us all, wasn't it? He was. There's an awful lot of demands in that contract that you know I wasn't privy to mm. beforehand. Um, I'm not. I'm not comfortable signing away my second-born grandson. <laughs> But we'll see how that turns out at the time. I may have to renege on the contract. My understanding is that they don't like that, though. Mm. Maybe it'll have to be like Mal Reynolds. I'll give them the money back, no harm, no foul. And then at some future point, I'll just have to kick them into an airlock. Yeah. And out the ship. Mm. Anyway, Chris's email continues. <laughs> Between the reposts of the earlier shows and the new content, I'm a very happy camper. I appreciate the amount of work you put into your show, both on the research and, and with the post-production. And as a lifelong Spider-Man fan myself, I loved listening to you wax nostalgic about my favourite character. And with your knowledge base and appreciation for the character, you seem like a distant, long-lost brother from another mother. That's very sweet. Thanks, Chris. Michael, keep on digging the stuff that makes you happy. I love hearing the younger generation's take on things, even things I'm unfamiliar with, as sadly Marvel and DC priced me out of regular reading quite a while ago. Most of all, I love seeing that Andy has passed down his passion to the next generation. I have no children, that I know of, so I've had to pass on my love of comics and Tolkien and sci-fi to my younger cousins and nephews. I think I've succeeded. You're doing God's work. Loved the Spotlight episodes. Those were a great way for newer listeners to get to know you guys. Just started digging into your coverage of Maximum Carnage. This is where I gave up Spidey until JMS took over the book. Then that one more day crap happened. Out again. <laughs> Carnage and clones in the 90s. Oh my, just didn't do it for me. That being said, I'm loving the episodes. I look forward to whatever you two have in store next. Keep up the good work, the singing and the wit. Chris, her metal hero, Tyler. Now, the more emails we get in, the more I think I'm the only one who likes one more day. I'm beginning to suspect you are the only person on the planet <laughs> that likes one more day. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Chris. That was really nice. Yeah. Thank you very much. Email in again. As Chris said, he does the vault, vault, startling vault of horror. The, the vault of startling Which I made a guest appearance of on this Halloween. Oh, you did? Yes. Yeah. Uh, according to Mr. Honeywell, yeah. it was like casting Alec Guinness in Star Wars. It was exactly like that. <laughs> Wouldn't have thought that, but it worked just fine. Yeah, it was exactly like that, yeah. 
I brought my entire thespian talents to the fore <laughs> in my role um, in yeah. that Edgar Allan Poe story. I still think you should have done Dagon. Well, suggest that to them and maybe they'll do it next year. Mm. You heard that suggestion? Mm-hmm. Do Dagon. I'm still doing that from English. P.S. Are uh, you? Yeah. yeah. Right. The letters section is fine, but not what makes the shows. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. PPS, how can a bunch of blokes from England not have played any Slade in the background? Unless I missed it. Uh, I promise we you... We taste. We, I love Slade. <laughs> Come on, we're all... Mambo, we're all crazy now. Come on, feel the noise. The classics, <laughs> man. We will play some Slade, and it'll be for you. Promise. Probably in the Christmas show. Yeah. Which gives you an idea about what the Christmas song's yeah. going to be. Can't you someone got Slade and Suede mixed up and Slade started doing Christmas songs about drugs? <laughs> Animal Nitrate is PPPS, Dragon Con 2013. I made a vow to dress as Willow of Good and that alone should be worth a transatlantic flight. I would love to go to Dragon Con. Yeah. I don't think 2013's looking like it happens. Uh, it's going to happen. PPPPS, okay, I have to ask. Spotted Dick? Really? What is it with you limey buggers? Just kidding. Uh, I've never eaten spotted dick or dick of any kind. <laughs> for that matter. You? <laughs> I don't even know what it is. I know it's a pudding of some description. It's, it's got raisins in it. I, I couldn't get past the name. It's got raisins in it. No, I just... I, I heard the name of it and thought, there's no way in hell that's going in my mouth. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Mr. Tyler. It was very much appreciated. Email in again. Mm. Soon. Our next email <clears throat> is from Tom Panarese. Architect of Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. Let's see, remember to plug that one. Because it's really good. Yeah. I'm in the process of listening to it. Okay. It's a very, very good podcast. I'm looking forward to it and getting to Prodigal. Yeah. So we can compare notes. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be fun. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Tom. Hello. I just finished. I just finished listening to the last of your spotlight episodes, all of which I thoroughly enjoyed, even if some of the people you covered were artists and writers I don't normally read. I like that you put the spotlight on people whose work you personally enjoy reading, and completely agree with your assertion that there has to be room in the classic lists for works other than Watchmen and Dark Knight. I enjoy those books, but yes, it's annoying that they're the go-to stories for good superhero stories. It's been a long time since I've read Kingdom Come, and your discussion of the story in the Alex Ross episode has made me want to go and buy the trade paperback, because it has more content than the original four-issue series, which is what I own. Uh, That's what I own as well, Tom. Michael's got the absolute. I own the original four-issue bookshelf editions. I I may have to reread it and see if it holds up nearly 20 years later, but from what I remember, it's one of the few stories with Alex Ross out that I really enjoyed. It's not that I don't like his art, but I've never been a big fan of his Superman and Batman because the way he drew two heroes made them look so much older than I originally pictured them. But that's my hang-up. I would love to see another Spotlight On series. Perhaps you can spotlight a particular character or team this round-round. Perhaps put the spotlight on books you think are underrated or deserve more attention. Or perhaps you could do a career evolution spotlight, where you look at something from the beginning of someone's career, followed by something of more recent vintage near the end. Anyway, those are some of the things that popped into my head while listening. I'm a couple of episodes behind, but I'm also catching up on your classic episodes... I thank you for saying classic and not ancient. And it's nice to have so much for Tom to listen to. Keep up the great work, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. We appreciate that. Uh, I definitely want to do a Bill Mantle or Spotlight. Yeah. After reading uh, that link that Michael sent me about what happened to him. You know um, what, what, what character we could Spotlight on? Go on. John Constantine. Yeah, and that, <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, since the announcement that they're cancelling Hellblazer, yeah. I have thought we should do a Hellblazer episode. We should. And dedicate it to Mr. Constantine. Mm. Because uh, when Hellblazer was cooking, 
it was one of the finest Vertigo books simply because it wasn't hit and run even yeah. Preacher and Sandman they ran for however long they ran for so you could still say they were finite series Hellblazer chugged along mm. every month and it deserves recognition so yeah. we may very well do a spotlight on Hellblazer at some point we may not do them as seasons then we could always throw in a, a Hey Kids comic spotlight on as like a, a random event yeah, yeah. Instead of doing another season of it, as the wind, as the wind takes us, mm. as the muse takes us, that's a good idea. Yeah, I like that idea. Because you do know this Constantine won't be as good as Hellblazer. No. Have you seen the the Bleeding Cool article? All the things that happened in Hellblazer, which they cannot do in a mainstream DC title. Yes, that's that's just not gonna go yeah. go well. Yeah. Our next email is just called Reflashpoint. It's by Jay Ferguson. Hello, Jay. Hello. Hello there, Leylands. Your podcast is well good, and I like it greatly. And I'm a bit sorry I haven't made any comments unto you lovely podcasters, because I love your show so much. Listening to the Flashpoint episode at the moment, Michael is absolutely right. There you go. I emphasise that a bit for you. About the three timelines at the end of Flashpoint, they are Vertigo, Wildstorm, and the mainline DC. I did really like Andrew's view on Flashpoint as metatextual narrative, which, while it doesn't succeed on the level of Crisis, does a pretty good job of wrapping continuity, fiddling into an engaging tale that makes the reader feel like what is coming, despite their feelings on it, is for the best, at least if they are ready to go along with it. Did try to have something nice to say about both of you, because I really do fall between you and my views, definitely sympathising with the loves that you both have in comics, but also disagreeing with some of the things you don't care for. <coughs> Kirby. It's really fun to listen to you two, because I'm pretty much always vehemently disagreeing with one of you, and agreeing, and agreeing, sorry, just as hard with the other, and it's constantly changing from episode to episode, and many times within a single episode. I emailed Jay back and said, we, our goal now yeah. is to get him to flip-flop between <laughs> us in, in, in a single sentence. Yeah. That's my next goal. But I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that there is. Because we do seem to fall into two camps, don't we? There's people that agree with you, yeah. who tend to be the younger end of the spectrum. Who tend to be like one or two people every once in a while. No, 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 <laughs> don't, don't be down at yourself. And then there's people who, who agree with me, who tend to be the older end of the spectrum. Yeah. And then Luke... Every once in a while. Yeah, Luke kind of falls in the middle, yeah. which I quite like. Which is why Luke's emails are interesting, because he does fall in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Jay goes along with both of us at various different points just goes to prove that we're both right. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of both being right. It's a good place. It means you're still right. Better than both being wrong. (laughs) Put it that way. Uh, Jay's email continues. One thing I did want to mention, if no one has yet, I assume that they have since this is so far after, but what the heck, is the bit where Batman talks about someone slipping is a Jason Todd reference to a story where a criminal got off because he was a diplomat's son and had immunity. Jason paid him a visit and after the man fell to his death off a balcony, he said that the man slipped, though it was heavily implied that the man had been killed by Jason. No, nobody has mentioned that and I remember that story. Yeah. Because that was one of the, the nails in the coffin of Jason Todd, that it was like... He killed that guy, but mm. Batman had no proof that he killed that guy. So, thank you for that. Anyway, you are great. I never get bored of hearing that. <laughs> and I will send another missive once I'm caught up. Best wishes, Jay Ferguson. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Do continue to email him. You can always just Facebook us with a quick question, if you've got one. But obviously, uh, if you want us to read it on the show, email us. Because I, I don't remember Facebook messages, do I? No. I have no clue about Facebook messages. Our next email is from Michael Peacock. Maximum Carnage, or the crossover that may or may not feature Spider-Man as the subject heading. Dear Andrew and Michael, 
I told you delightful gents I would be writing in again, and after a work day made up of your Maximum Carnage two-part trilogy, I now have my fuel to do so. But before I reach the subject at hand, I did want to mention some thoughts on some previous episodes, and to maybe stoke the fires for a mentioned project. Creator Spotlight episodes. When I first wrote in, I forgot to even mention highlights from the Creator Spotlight episodes themselves, since my memory is, in your English terms, cack. And he spelt cack right. <laughs> well done. There's a lot of people spell that with, like, K-A-K. Which is fine, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But I always spell it C-A-C-K. Mm. So, congratulations. American spelling something right, <laughs> shocker. <laughs> oh, you know. He's going to put an extra U in it the next time he writes in just to annoy me. <laughs> I'm only going to name drop the ones that spring immediately to mind. Grant Morrison, I've no real issues with. As for all the things I've read of his material, the only ones that didn't really make an impression on me were Final Crisis and that one text issue for Batman. I liked that. that, yeah. that. The joke, what's it called? The Clown, the clown at Midnight. I quite, that was one of my favourite of the Grant Morrison issues that I read. Yeah, it's not good enough. No, but it doesn't yeah. really matter, does it? Because it's a text story. In general, while the man has some... <clears throat> unique perspective I feel that his comic ideas are fairly exciting and if all else fails there's always his JLA run for me which I can never forget how epic that felt John Byrne to me his hands down best years were with the Clermont X-Men and his Superman reboot I did enjoy some scattered issues of Fantastic Four and I really mean to reread his work on West Coast Avengers and Sensational She-Hulk but over the years he's lost me somewhat probably when he got his second wind of popularity from Next Men which I've tried reading but just couldn't power through Garth Ennis, to me, begins and ends with Preacher. And even that series I've been hard-pressed to revisit. That's not to say it's bad. In fact, I agree with you both that Ennis' Preacher should be higher up on comic story reckonings. But the series is such an emotional roller coaster that I can't push play and revisit over and over again. To be fair, the same goes for Game and Sandman. Superman 3 commentary. Two words. Do it. We did. Yep. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Michael, trust me, when I was a wee lad, the Brainiac sequence freaked me to the fuzz out. I should say that again, shouldn't I? The Brainiac sequence freaked me the fuzz out as well. But over the years, that became a highlight moment for me, along with Superman fighting his sloppy drunk clone. Say, maybe that should have happened with the Spider-Man clone saga. But if that fizzles out, I will most certainly beg and plead in a manner that would embarrass many dogs for a Superman 4 commentary. For better or worse, that's one movie I revisit oddly more often than it deserves. I did an episode that just went back up on the Two Tree Freaks feed without you. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Because I was very excited about getting my copy of Amazing Spider-Man 100. Yeah. In which I talked at length about Superman 4. And while, yes, it's terrible, yes. I don't think it's as terrible as everyone thinks it is. I think time has been unusually kind to it. Hey, let's clone Superman from an item of clothing. No, they clone him from his hair. Oh, yeah. Which Luther has no, part, no problem cutting. Yeah. That's a bit dope. And every, every country is fine with Superman just coming and stealing, yeah, and stealing all the, the nuclear weapons. weapons. Yeah. But on the plus side, you've got a Superman that speaks multiple languages which I liked. I liked yeah. that a great deal. I liked all the stuff in Smallville where he goes back home to sell the family home. I mm-hmm. thought that was quite sweet. And uh, I, I liked that Superman has a knockdown, drag-out fight with someone of his power level. Yeah. It's an appallingly executed <laughs> knockdown, drag-out fight because the budget just wasn't there. Yeah, but at least there was But at least they, they tried to give us what we want to see in a Superman movie mm. and have very rarely seen him being able to punch the crap out of somebody which we've not seen. No. Plus, as Scott Gardner would say, how can you not? How can you completely dislike a Superman movie where he throws stuff into the sun? Hi, Scott. <laughs> 
Now onto the episode subject matter, continues Mike's email. When I first wrote the show, it was with a slightly defending tone for the series. In a way, my pre-teen self still sticks up for my enjoying it at the time, but your review really does make it sound like one hunk a hunk a pile of doggy poo. Alas, for the 90s were a time when Marvel seemed to want to milk their semi-popular cows to keep up with those blasted DC events and those dastardly independent companies made up of former staff members. I will say this for DC, regardless of their qualities. They seem to handle crossover events with a bit more focus and payoff than Marvel can. I'm not saying that's an excuse for either company, but crossover burnout is one of the many reasons why I no longer collect single-issue comics. But at least DC didn't seem to flounder as much as Marvel did when trying to create a completely engaging multi-title storyline. Look at the bright side for Maximum Carnage. They didn't give you any more symbiotes than Venom and Carnage. Can you imagine what it would be like if they tried shoehorning in all the symbiotes introduced in the first Venom Lethal Protector miniseries? Yeah, well, there were about five of them. Yes, yeah, And there was about five different symbiotes. Thank you both for another fine pair of episodes as I write this on Guy Fawkes Day. Remember, remember the 5th of November. I look forward to hearing you both keep your wits for the last part of the trilogy and also just look forward to hearing another episode soon. Sincerely, Mike Peacock. Remember the 5th of November when we built a train that goes through the House of Parliament. That, that was like one big thing I had a problem with V for Vendetta. Oh, right. Yeah, you know that train that runs right through it? We meant to do V for Vendetta this year, didn't we? And yeah. we, just, we just ran out of time. I'm sorry about that. Maybe next year mm-hmm. when we can devote proper time to it and do the film as well. Yeah. Oh, P.S. The more I overhear Angela in recordings, the more she reminds me of my girlfriend's reaction to some of my tangents. Ah, well, if she's keeping me around for about a year and some change months, she must have a reservoir of patience with my nerdy habits. Heck, if I can talk her into watching some of Krull for an afternoon to see if it holds up, that's something special. And the answer is no. It really doesn't. Man, that movie's more boring than I remembered it being. <laughs> Alright, we'll cross that off the list then. Don't watch Krull. Because I think I saw it once when I was about 12. Did you? And I don't think I've seen it again. Oh, we're going to get to Luke's email in the 30 minute mark. <laughs> Excellent. Luke Giaconetta. Hiya, Luke. I'm looking forward to this because he, he takes up our challenge yeah. of defending Maximum Carnage. That and you get to sing. And I get to sing. It's a Maximum Carnage world. We all just live in it, is the subject headed. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Go on, then. We're a Venom girl in a Venom world. If you call us insane, we'll eat your lovely brain. I don't know what's worse, though. You probably enjoyed that. I did enjoy that, but I absolutely (laughs) cannot stand Aqua. I despise Aqua with the fiery passion of a thousand burning Tatooine twin sons. And yeah, I did enjoy that. (laughs) Damn you, Giaconetti! Actually, that was fun. Thanks, Luke. So, yeah, listen to the third episode of Maximum Carnage, says Luke. Another good episode taking a look at a series that most every comic book fan have heard of, if not necessarily read. You guys said that you hoped the fans of this story would reread it and offer a contemporary take on the story. I did just that, and we'll get to it in a moment. A few notes. Andy, the other Avenger gal you could not identify was Cersei of the Eternals. Oh, I know her. That would explain why I couldn't identify her. Never read any Eternals. I've, I've only read Neil Gaiman's. <clears throat> right. She was a stalwart member of the team during this, the leather jacket period. <laughs> I love the Iron Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the leather jacket that age. That makes so much sense now, actually. That it's Cersei. No, there was one bit in the Eternals where Iron Man says, well, you know, the current superior registration act is coming on, so if you want to join the Avengers again, and she's like, what? I was never on the Avengers. And I was like, what? She was never on the Avengers. Apparently she was on the Avengers. Fair enough. And about the leather jackets, continues Luke. It might be hard to believe, but a lot of readers seem to like them, if the letters page was any indication. We even had people asking Marvel to produce them for sale. And they did it again for X-Men. <laughs> uh, see, 
I didn't not like the leather jacket. It was just a very definite sign of the night. Yeah, and I got the feeling they just went a little bit over the top with them. But, you know, I didn't hate they them. They did a bandana as well. Yeah, but was that far Thunderstrike? No, I, could, I don't think we worked that out, did we? No. It was one of them, anyway. It was a 90, so Thunderstrike sounds like a 90s name. Yeah. Regarding Spider-Man calling Cletus Cassidy an innocent, I always read this as a bald-faced lie on Spidey's part, trying to manipulate Venom as he'd done previously by appealing to the twisted sense of justice. I doubt Spidey really believed it. Neither Venom nor Carnage were buying it. Then again, this was the 90s during the Clinton administration where we got the phrase, I feel your pain. So who knows? Um... See, within the context of the story, I got that he was being totally serious. Yeah. Because this is the guy all the way through. It was like, don't, don't lower yourself to his level, Venom. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, Spidey, really don't. So, although, if you're no-prizing it, Luke, that is a legitimate way of no-prizing it. Mm. Because you could say, all right, Spidey was lying to try and get Venom to not be a murdering scumbag. And yeah, it kind of works, doesn't it? Works. It works a little bit. And uh, I am going to have to flag you once again for bringing up Venom killing the cop in Amazing Spider-Man 300. I'm only, flowing th- no, I'm only throwing the flag here because you bring it up all the time. Come on, man. It is insane. I'm sorry, Luke. There's no statute of limitations on murder. No one is doubting that. He feels tremendous remorse for killing the kid. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Which speaks more for his own insanity than anything else. Of interesting note is that the guard which Venom kills when Eddie escapes from the vault around Amazing Spider-Man 315 will go on to play a role in later stories. That kid's father would be the man who funded and armed the jury, a heavily armoured strike team whose sole mission was to exterminate Venom, as introduced in the Venom Lethal Protector miniseries. Second mention for that miniseries in this show. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, Luke, he may have shown remorse about doing it in his subsequent miniseries. I don't think at any point he felt remorseful for doing it. If you just read the Amazing Spider-Man things. Yeah. He's a murderer. Now, okay, I get that you like Venom. I like Venom. <laughs> I like Venom as a bad guy. Yeah. I'm not buying this whole anti-hero thing. Making him fight criminals that are worse than him does not make him a hero. Mm. So, I think we're both just going to have to disagree slightly on which Venom we like. Luke seems to like the Venom that became the anti-hero, and I get that, if that's when you grew up reading comics. Yeah. I like him as an out-and-out bad guy. Mm. I don't mind that he's a murderer, if he's an out-and-out bad guy. But don't tell me he's a murderer with a conscience, because he's not. He's not Dirty Harry, or the Punisher, who were people who killed, or James Bond. Yeah. People that do kill but do it in the course of what they're doing. Venom murdered that cop in cold blood. I'm sorry, but he did. Andy, you also mentioned that the story might have been improved if Carnage had killed Aunt May. (laughs) I don't think I specifically (laughs) said Aunt May. Anybody that Peter was close to, I think... Like Aunt May. May have changed Peter's perspective somewhat, is is what I said. Whilst I don't disagree with this, would you agree with me if I said that any story published after 1980 would be improved if the bad guy, whoever they were, killed Aunt May? (laughs) Um... I want to go to the alternate universe where Aunt May died in Amazing Spider-Man 121, not Gwen, and okay. see how it panned out. That's that's what I want. Or, they should have just left her dead after Amazing Spider-Man 200. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have minded that. Now that, as I said, I broke out my box of Venom comics and reread Maximum Carnage after being inspired by your guy's show. This was the first time I'd read the story in a decade. And the verdict? I loved it. 
I can't explain it, but this story still hits me right in the sweet spot where a good comic story gets you. Where you find yourself finning an issue and saying, all right, just one more, and turning into the next one. If not for the fact that I read it during the week I had to go to bed at a reasonable time, I would have read the entire thing in one sitting. I became a serious comics reader in the 90s. That old saying of the golden age of comics was when you were 13 holds true for me. These were the comics I loved when the universe of comics was laid before me, like something out of a Jim Sterling story, and I still get the same excited from re- <clears throat> excitement from reading them now as it did then. The art was almost universally very nice. Not too over the top or ridiculous like a lot of 90s comics. Usually only Spidey looks really contorted, but in a good way. The way that Spidey should be drawn to be twisted and contorted as he flips through the air. Bags is the best artist of the bunch, I think, but on this read-through I really started warming to Buscema's contributions in Spectacular. I remember thinking his stuff was bland and weak when the story first came out. Looking at it now, I can appreciate his storytelling a lot more. The sequence where the Carnage crew attacks Fifth Avenue, for instance, looks really good under Buscema. I like the curvy, hippie, 60s Marvel Girl style in which he draws Shriek as well, which then transitions to the horrific, shrill, tight face he gives and harsh angles her when she's screaming or fighting, from Glamour Girl's Horror Queen in the span of a panel. I think I've said before... I'm interrupting Luke now. This is me editorialising. I think I've said before, as a kid, I thought Sal Buscema's artwork was dull. Yeah. And it's only as I've got older and realised, A, he was churning out an awful lot of work in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. because he could do it on time, so Marvel kept giving him stuff to do. And B, once he started inking himself in Spectacular Spider-Man, I really learned to love his work and how much of an excellent draftsman he was. And it was interesting to contrast his old-school art versus Tom Lyle and Matt Bagley. Yeah. Because those three were easily on a par for me. I thought all three of those delivered solid work in that series. Yeah, we didn't really have a problem with the artwork, did we? No, the art was good. The art was... My my views on Kirby have changed during the... See? uh, Yeah, but I still think some of his work is utter pants. I think that's true of everybody. Fantastic Four. Get out! The art in Fantastic Four is... quite bad. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. From about 40 on... Would okay, your cynical for the, the the early fantastic the early ones, ones it's not bad it's crude by today's standards but, but I would argue that it's bad stuff. compared to his later stuff it's it's much cruder than he would become mm. and I think early fantastic four art I agree with you doesn't hold a candle to his fourth world stuff so the fourth world stuff is really good but throughout his fantastic four runs certainly from like forty onwards you start seeing where that fourth world stuff came from. Yeah. And he couldn't have evolved down that path Without fantastic if stuff. he hadn't done the first the 40 issues. The problem with um, his art in the fourth world stuff is <laughs> the ending. Because everything got cancelled and he had to do it quick. He had to finish it off. But I've not got volume for the trades yet, so the, I'm going to read them is, off. This is what I've learned from reading Super Gods. Mm. But that everything got cancelled due, uh, due to low sales. And then he got to finish the fourth world stuff um, briefly hmm. in the graphic novel The Hunger Dogs and it was years later so his, his art was and they changed the ending to The Hunger Dogs didn't they did they it's my understanding they changed the ending to The Hunger Dogs because Kirby ended it and DC they was and uh, no again. we may want to use Darkseid again yeah so be interesting to see if in the fourth trade paperback they have the original endings that would be good did they have an original ending yeah he, he drew it to end so it, it w- and they changed it is my understanding right. I'm sure somebody can, can fill me in on the gaps in my knowledge though. Luke's email continues 
I think that the story itself is indicative of what Marvel was going through at the time. Speaking of someone who was 12 to 13 when this story came out, my 13th birthday being the 16th of the 6th, 93. Ooh, he's a day after me. Happy birthday, Luke, for yeah. the day after me. 16th of June, I'm the 15th. Yeah. Excellent. 93, though. No, 93 was when he was 13. Ah, right. So he was born in 1980. Yeah. So he's eight years younger than me. Just rubbing that in there. there. Spider-Man was seen as boring. He was seen as behind the times and passe. Now, I recognise that this is not the opinion of older readers, but Marvel had the most recognisable solo character being shown up his own boot by his evil twin in Venom. Say what you want about Venom, but they sold comics. A lot of comics. Maximum Carnage was suckling at the money teat that Venom and Carnage provided. Not the most artistic of intentions, but it's all right there on the page. Spider-Man is not the star of this story. Carnage and Venom are the stars, and Marvel was giving the readers what they wanted, or at least what they thought they wanted. Is it any surprise that the next big story in Spider-Man was the Clone Saga, where the boring, staid, uninteresting Spidey was replaced with a new, hipper, cooler one? And what was one of the Scarlet Spider's first major battles? against Venom and he beat him fairly handily this was Marvel saying look here this is the new Scarlet Spider and you can stand up to Venom yeah I see I, I don't disagree with anything you say though Spider-Man is not the stir of Maximum Carnage I think we mentioned that yeah. on more than one occasion and yes the Scarlet Spider showing up and kicking the crap out of Venom was very much look it's this is the real deal mm. but there was a very definite element of them wanting the Scarlet Spider to be cooler than Spider-Man because the original idea was he was going to take over and what better way of showing that than having him kick the crap out of Venom especially seeing as, let's be honest if you go back and read those Venom stories Peter Parker makes some very dubious decisions regarding Venom isn't it one of those issues that he basically says to him look, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone I have no idea Peter Parker says that to a murderer you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. I don't care who else you go and kill. That Uncle Ben deal? Yes, and so so Peter did make some very dubious decisions with Venom. Mm. So it did make it easy to bring in somebody else. I never thought the idea of making Venom an anti-hero was misguided, because at least when Dave Michelini was handling the writing shows, Venom's insanity was never in doubt. In the first scene of Lethal Protector, for instance, Venom comes across a mugger who is mad about the chump change in his victim's purse, and he's about to force himself on her. Venom swoops down and dispatches the would-be attacker, suffocating him with the symbiote. He then grins happily at the victim, handing her back her purse and patting her on the head, saying, How rude of us. We're Venom, no need to thank us. Your joy is more than enough reward. And as he swings away, she screams and runs in terror. Venom is beyond deluded, but he's also charming and funny and nuts. He's got his problems, but he's trying to do the right thing, which is what made Lethal Protector and the other minis good. This is why the books sold at two ninety-five apiece in the 90s for as long as they did, and why I and many others enjoyed them so much. Heck, even Spider-Man himself bought Venom getting his own boot was insane. The cover to Lethal Protector 1 has Spidey face-palming and saying, Oh, brother. A few other things. I think you guys may have got a little mixed up on Shriek's origin. Uh, I don't think we did. I don't think it was told to us. Mm. They gave us little bits and pieces, but never actually told us her origin. That or I got mixed up listening to you. Shriek was a minor drug dealer and a heavy metal rock and roll groupie. Went a little nuts after taking a bullet to the head. Ran into a guy who blew my mind, as she says. Then at some point in the past, she ended up running into Cloak and Dagger and fell into Cloak's dark dimension. This is what turned her totally gonzo nuts, as we find out at the beginning of this story. There's not much circular logic, though, so maybe I misheard you guys. Also, the question of why Demogoblin hangs out with the Carnage crew. He states over and over again he wants to punish sinners sinners and wants a plan and all that so he's just sticking around to have the opportunity to do more of his punishing routine. He and Carnage never see eye to eye so his betrayal is foreshadowed very early. Okay, a couple of things on that. One it's not actually 
said in the story that that's her backstory. Maybe it's later on. It's possible that's all later on. All of that, what Luke tells us, though, is in Maximum Carnage. Yeah. But it's not made clear that she she took a bullet to the head. Mm. Doesn't she just say something like, I ran into a guy who blew my mind, quite literally? And that was Because it. we were confused by what that meant. Mm. Was she shot? Was she drug-addled? What? It wasn't told in the story. It was heavily implied she was a groupie. I didn't get that she was a drug dealer from Maximum Carnage, did you? Not a dealer. So you got that she was a drug taker? Yeah. Right, okay, that's fine. So a lot of what you're saying there fills in an awful lot of backstory, which is very helpful to us as readers, but it wasn't in Maximum Carnage, which kind of leads me to think that's bad writing. Now, it's entirely possible this was all spelled out in later Venom series that we've not read. Yeah. In which case, fine. But personally, I think all of that should have been in Maximum Carnage. Demogoblin, yes, but that's all he says. He says he just wants to punish sinners. Why does he need Carnage to do that? Why does he hang around with Carnage for 12 issues to do what he could quite easily do on his own? And isn't Carnage a sinner? Yeah. So why is he not punishing Carnage? I thought his entire motivation was very woolly. And isn't he himself a... A sinner. Yeah. So, see, that's... So, again, I do not disagree with what you're saying, Hmm. but in terms of the Maximum Carnage story, I thought he was completely unnecessary and a largely contradictory and repetitive character. You could take Demogoblin out of that story and it wouldn't matter at all. Carrion. He's a blank slate to me, as I've never read anything else with him. He was a victim of a virus created by Miles Warren, wasn't he? Something like that. Originally... Carrion was a clone of Miles Warren in a Bill Mantle or spectacular Spider-Man story around the mid-30s, I think. This was later retconned by Jerry Conway that it wasn't Miles Warren. It was someday made to look like Miles Warren when he did the whole evolutionary war stuff where the Gwen Stacy clone wasn't Gwen, but merely somebody supposed to look like Gwen. And Peter Parker wasn't a clone of Peter, but somebody who looked like Peter, which was, again, all retconned when the clone saga came about. I think that's right. I'm remembering all that off the top of my head, so I may have made a few mistakes, though. All right, then. But the original Carrion story by Bill Mantle, I remember being quite good. And then later on, it just got incredibly confusing mm. with all the, the clone it stuff. It sounds it. Yeah. Anyway, I've gone on long enough, but I want to say thank you for both talking about Maximum Carnage and bringing back so many good memories from it. Luke, you're very welcome, Luke. Even though we didn't like it, yeah. I'm glad that you did. And that about wraps it up for emails again. We've gone a bit over. Sorry. Uh, We'll be back in a minute with Prodigal. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman 
Superman Forever Radio. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Carousel Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey. Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And so, Hey Kids Comics becomes a Batman podcast again. Yay. Hooray! <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Hasn't it? Uh, first of all, we had wanted to do this in two episodes, covering six issues each because it's a 12-issue story arc. However, Michael has had important coursework to be done this week for school, have you not? Yes, I have. And that has to take precedence. So he's only had time to do the notes for four issues, so it's going to end up being a trilogy. Again, apologies, I know some people are like, oh, it's dragging out a bit, and it's a fair comment, but like I say, Michael's homework has to take precedence over the podcast. Uh, of course, we finished night's coverage, mm-hmm. but the story didn't end there. The serial nature of comics meant that the story continued with the after-effects of Jean-Paul taking over as the Batman and the ramifications to Bruce of his being broken by Bane continuing to resonate. And so, following in the break for Zero Hour, the Bat-books again began a multi-part crossover in which another character took over as Batman. So far, so meh. However, what made this different was the man occupying the suit was a man many of us had wanted to see take over for some considerable time. Former Boy Wonder and now Nightwing, and probably the most famous sidekick in comics, Dick Grayson. Now, there's been sidekicks before Dick. Stop smirking. What's that? Otherwise, this is going to be a very long three episodes. <laughs> the term sidekick originates from the 19th century and comes from pickpocket slang. The kick is the front side pocket of a pair of trousers and was found to be the pocket safest from theft. And in literature, Don Quixote had Sancho Panza, Gilgamesh had Enkidu, or Enkidu, and Holmes had Watson. But Dick was to be the first of the comic book sidekicks, and arguably the first of the sidekicks to actually mean anything. After teenagehood and training, one of the whole points of having a sidekick in the first place is the idea that at some point we will see them take over as the main hero of the book. And, yes, this idea had been toyed with on Earth 2, and Wally West had taken over from the deceased Barry Allen as the Flash. But Earth 2 didn't exist anymore, and Barry Allen was the second Flash, so a precedent had been set. In addition, many of us wingnuts wanted to see Dick as the Dark Knight, as it was my feeling that one of the obstacles Nightfall had never successfully hurdled was the absent and then pretty poor in-story explanation as to why Dick wasn't considered for the role in the first place. The real-world explanation made perfect sense. For the story they wanted to tell, they needed a Batman that was violent, unhinged and slightly manic, all traits that did not fit Dick Grayson. But although I didn't want to see Dick replace Bruce full-time, it would have been cool to see Dick take up the mantle of the Bat. How would he differ as the Batman? How would he be the same? Could he be the same? These questions were all answered in Prodigal, a 12-part crossover appearing in all the Bat books sans the out-of-continuity Legends of the Dark Knight with a November 94 cover date. 
Following on from the end of Robin Zero, Bruce has relinquished control of the Batman name to Dick Grayson, feeling he isn't quite ready to reclaim the title. Batman 512 kicks the storyline off and shipped on the 13th of September 1994 and has a cover by Mike Manley of The Batman in the sewers facing off against Killer Croc. I think this is a great cover on several levels. One, the colouring is wonderfully lit, only by the fleur Bruce holds in his hand. Second, Killer Croc looks badass. I don't know what it is about Killer Croc, but so many artists, good, solid artists, can't draw Croc for some reason. Manley can, which boded well for the story. Robin and Batman was written by Doug Mensch, penciled by Mike Gustovich, inked by Romeo Tankhal, lettered by Ken Brusenak, coloured by Adrian Roy, with assistant edits by Jordan B. Goffinkel and edits by Denny O'Neill. The Batman was created by Bob Kane. I was instantly disappointed to see Mike Manley didn't draw the issue. Yeah. So my, my joy at the cover was like, oh, I hope this Mike Gustovich can draw Killer Croc then. Has mm. any artist actually drawn Killer Croc to have Killer Crocs? Origin. You know, yeah, he's a, a guy with a, a skin with disease. With a skin disease. Mm. No, because he just looks like a crocodile, really. So everyone draws him as a big monster now. Yeah, I mean, my problem with Killer Croc is lots of people just draw him to look like the lizard. Yeah. Which never works. I like Killer Croc to actually, you know, look like a crocodile. Fair a bit. Enough. Looking like the lizard just doesn't work for me. I actually like the idea of him being a guy with a skin disease. Yeah, I, think I, I like that idea. The Brian Azzarello Batman story up which he really didn't like no I didn't like that at all I liked the the killer croc in that just because he was just a normal guy right but with a skin well that was his original origin they've not changed that have they they've not changed Um, the skin diseased man no but I think in Hush when he's all a big monster Batman just says oh he's had a mutation since I first met him right okay you see that's fair enough he could, the disease could continue to mutate with his body chemistry or whatever yeah. pseudo-scientific reason they came up with for him. Anyway, Prodigal Part 1, Robin and Batman. Dick tells Bruce that it's going to be wild standing in for him as Bruce leaves to do something else. Dick and Tim gas up the car and head out. Over at the Gotham River in a beautifully illustrated sequence, Killer Croc, recovered from his beating at the hands of Bane, proves his virility by eating a homeless drunkard. Job done, he heads over the river towards the city. Presumably it's a bit later on as Dick and Tim have decided to get a meal before going out. Dick reminisces about life living here as a boy and how much they miss Alfred and Tim is amazed to discover that the man who left home ages ago and now lives alone can cook when Dick makes them a meal. Before they can finish however the signal ruins dessert. Gordon informs them of the death of the bum and three other deaths along that stretch of river. Gordon lets it be known that he knows there's a different man under the mask of the Batman. And Batman and Robin deduce that it's Waylon Jones doing the killings. Killer Croc. They borrow a boat from Wayne Tech and go fishing. Croc, meanwhile, has found gunrunners and gets them to let the boss man Peretti know that Killer Croc is back. Batman and Robin happen upon this transaction and, after Batman tells Croc that Bane is in Blackgate, Croc says that the debt is passed on to Batman instead. They go toe-to-toe with Robin providing assist, but Peretti and his men arrive, none too pleased that Croc is back and open fire. Robin takes on the mobsters while Batman wrestles with Croc. Batman gets Croc all tied up in a fishing net, hooked up to a crane, but he takes some spur bullets from Peretti's men, who Robin subsequently takes down. They call the police, but back at the cave, Dick secretly wonders what he's doing. And at the Gotham City Police Department, HQ, Gordon wonders who this third Batman is, and if he can really trust... Kent Crusader. Uh, an auspicious beginning. Mm. It was quite good, this one. Page one. 
the title of the story is in the old Batman and Robin logo, which I thought was really cool. Mm. Except, obviously, Robin is the, the bigger letter. Yeah. Page one's also the last page of the uh, last issue of Robin, though. Yeah, more or less. Except all of a sudden, Bruce gets changed really quickly. Oh, no, he doesn't. He only takes off the cape, doesn't he? Mm. He just leaves it on the floor. Yeah. Completely forgetting Alfred's not around to tidy up. Thanks, Har- Bruce. Harold looking it up. Harold will do it, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of Bruce leaving, on page two... Bruce is just going to walk out of the mouth of the cape wearing his Batman tunic, sans cape and mask. Yeah. That's what he's going to do, is it? Yeah. If he'd ascended up the stairs back to the mansion, I could have bought that. Because he could have got changed. Yeah, that would have made sense. He was going to get some normal clothes and then he'd get a bag a la David Banner. Mm. But that's just daft. He's just going to walk out the cave wearing the bat suit but without the mask. What's he going to do then? Um, he, he could say that he was just fancy dressing up. Really? Mm. It's not Halloween. Okay, he brought a girl home who kind of had certain interests. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, fair enough. Um, I do like that Dick's having doubts here, which we'll play later on into the story. Dick never wanted to be Batman. He's always assumed it would be his destiny, but it wasn't one he would have pursued for himself. So seeing that he may be taking the gig here as a favour to Bruce and Tim especially given how badly it turned out last time Bruce turned it over to somebody else, uh, there's some interesting foreshadowing about how the story's going. Also interesting, Bruce has essentially left Dick in charge of fixing Batman's damaged reputation. Yeah. Remember, at the end of Night's Quest, Batman was severely distrusted by the police to the point that they were firing at him. Mm. Gordon didn't want anything to do with him, and everybody was terrified of him, plus the amount of property damage he'd caused... So, like, it's now up to Dick to fix it. Thanks, Bruce. I've just uh, spent four years messing everything up. Now you're going to spend your four years tidying everything up. Thanks. (laughs) Does he get to spend four years as the Batman, then? Is that the deal? Yeah. Now he's been elected in. Yeah. Uh, Pages three and four. Port Gustavich and Tangal under Kandrokrok, which pleased me. I was quite pleased with that. Because the art on these two pages is gorgeous. The underwater shot on page four is especially effective and very Spielberg so the camera's underneath Killer Croc as he swims away so you only see Croc's body but you don't see his face because obviously his head's above the water but you do see the body of the person he's just killed sinking below and then you can see the landscape above the water's edge that's a fantastic piece of art Yeah, it's really difficult to pull that off I think not Mm. being an artist so what would I know but I loved it. I thought that was really good. Um, page six. We've got Dick and Tim wandering around the mansion in their dressing gowns. <laughs> Frederick Wortham would have loved this, wouldn't he? He would. Oh, dear. Some good relationship stuff here between Tim and Dick. Especially the line that Dick can cook and Tick's, re- Tick's reaction. <laughs> Tim's reaction. <laughs> Very, I'm glad you're here every time I cock something up. I, I have a hard time believing Bruce ordered Chinese food. Mm. Unless he gets all the vegetable dishes and don't get anything fried. Isn't he very much body as a temple? He is, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the only thing wrong with this is they would repeat this ad nauseum yeah. through the rest of the story. Oh, look, Dick can cook. Oh, look, Dick can wash. Oh, look, Dick can iron. Why is this a surprise? The guy lives on his own. Mm. You don't learn to cook when you live on your own. You don't eat. Well, You don't learn to clean your clothes when you live on your own. You have dirty clothes. Tins of beans and tubs. Yeah, so it, it's not really a surprise to me that the guy can cook. I, I, I did like that scene, though, where he was surprised he can cook. Is and, that and, implying and, that Bruce can't? Um, 
Well, he wouldn't have needed to learn, really. No, because he's got Alfred. Yeah. And how does cooking fit in with his mission? Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose so. Because we've already established in the New Zero Hour continuity. Mm. He got straight A's in stuff like criminology and all of that. Yeah. Stuff that actually pertained to not being part of his mission. He was like, okay. Mm. (laughs) I do also like the the Tim-Dick relationship as well. It's very good, isn't it? Yeah. And they do a good job of that all the way through the story. How Tim and Dick's relationship is very different. Um, it has to be said, Dick Grayson's rocking the mullet. Yeah. And it's a particularly bad mullet. He needs to keep it for a while, though. Oh, dear God. Would he? He would, yeah, wouldn't he? Stick he with that mullet for a while. Yeah. Well. I've got a Robin action figure with a mullet. With a mullet. Yeah. Uh, page seven. Yes! After scene after scene in Night, whatever of Gordon taking it from Mayor Crow. <laughs> Gordon politely here tells him to suck eggs. Yeah. And he does throughout the rest of Prodigal. Mm. Whenever the Murph phones him now, he's just like, shut up and go away and hangs up on him. And like, if I wasn't on the phone talking to you, maybe I could get my job done. So I like that, that Gordon's finally just gone, I've had enough of this clown. Mm. I don't care if he is the Murph, he'll be gone in two years. It's a couple of story acts too late though. No, well, that's, you, you think about it, at some point he, he does have to take orders from him. Yeah. So he will have been trying to keep the peace mm. and now you just get the impression that he's fed up with the fact that there's been three Batmen and he doesn't know who's who and to add it all he has to deal with this political idiot Yeah, and he's just had enough and he's like oh go away you moron page 8 when they arrive at the police department where the bat signal's been shining uh, Robin sorry, asks Dick if he's going to use the rough spooky voice to fool Gordon which I thought was interesting for two reasons one where was it established that Batman puts on a rough voice whenever he's Batman? And two, or B, Gordon isn't fooled. And I like that. I prefer a Gordon that isn't an idiot, like the TV show version of the character. Where where was it set up? I mean, Michael Keaton did a a different voice as Batman, didn't he? Did he? Yeah. Not quite as oppressive as Christian Bale's mm. and Kevin Conroy did a different voice as Bruce Wayne and Batman but I don't I don't know where it was established in the comics that, I mean it makes sense that he does Yeah. but I just wondered was that established in the comics anywhere prior to the the 89 movie that when he's Batman he talks like this I don't know no I don't either I don't remember where, if anyone knows let us know because I'd love to know that that was actually spelt out in the comics somewhere that he changes his voice when he's Bruce Wayne um Page 10 has some excellent little continuity between the story arcs, referring back to Nightfall, where Robin was witness to Bane fighting Killer Croc. It seems like so long ago now. It does seem so long ago at this point. But for the characters, it, it's probably not. The other, uh, the other week. Yeah, it's probably just the other week. I mean, it is one of those things. I don't know if it was ever established how long Bruce had been away. Do you remember if they said? I'm not sure. But it's... I think it was implied that Gene Paul was Batman for a long time. Uh, certainly for a couple of months, Yeah, I think. So Killer Croc's been out of commission for a couple of months, which makes sense if he broke his, his arm or something. There's at least six weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, fair enough. I'll go with that. Because um, in in real time, this story ran forever, mm. didn't it? <laughs> Our episodes of Night Quest went on forever. Uh, page 12, there's an interesting reference to pre-crisis continuity. The squid who Killer Croc refers to here, 
was the gang boss killed by Croc in Batman 357 from March 1983 that led to the origin of the pre-crisis Jason Todd. Hmm. Yet, it's referenced here. Yet, that went away from continuity in 1986. So, I think we can assume from that, then, that the killer Croc squid stuff still happened, but then this is like you are now. Yeah. Because if that happened then by that happening, that was how Jason Todd's parents got involved, which ultimately led to them being killed by Killer Croc. So if that happened, then that had to happen, but that can't happen, because post-crisis, Jason Todd was a delinquent thief living on the streets. Okay. So this is exactly the same as last week, when you were moaning about your zero issues. Yeah. This is my zero issue <laughs> continuity goof. Because while it was nice to see that get referenced, because I do love those issues of Batman, it just didn't. Make it much doesn't sense. make much sense because the one event can't happen without the other. Yeah. Unless post-crisis or post-zero hour, he kills the squid and that's it. Jason Todd wasn't involved in it in any way. Yeah. But that means that that storyline, yeah, just not the way you remember that, it. That storyline must have had a completely different ending to the one we saw. Mm. But it was nice. It was nice to see it again, because I thought that I'd just all been gone away. Page 13, they steal a boat from Wayne Tech. What, they don't have a bat boat anymore? Not yet. I thought it was a real shit. That could turn into a bat sub. Yeah, that's, that's quite cool. I did love that Bruce is referred to as Dick's dad. Yeah. Which ties in with the whole Zero Hour thing that he was adopted. Which, again, was something we mentioned last week, or the week before, that was kind of ignored and then played with again later on. I kind of read it as we've both been Robins, so Bruce is our dad as that. Yeah, because Tim... Well, no, it's only Dick who refers to him as borrowing dad's toys. And uh, toys got muscles, says Tim. Yeah, but he says that's our dad. That's our dad. So, yeah, but I get Bruce was never a father figure to Tim. Or certainly in this continuity, anyway. It could have all changed now. Yeah. Because it's just very, very confusing. Um, page 15, Dick merely says Bane was taken out by Batman, which, make, which makes Croc thinks he talks about himself in the third person. Mm. Which is a bit odd. <laughs> so he never actually says, I took out Bane. It's just Batman. Too yeah, bad. but he does that later on when he meets the tally man as well. He actually outright says, no, that wasn't me. Yeah. And you're like... Dick, you're supposed to be perpetuating the myth that there's only <laughs> one Batman. Keep doing stuff like this. It's not very smart. Batman Incorporated before it's time. Yeah, Batman Incorporated before Batman Incorporated. Um, there's an excellent fight scene at the end, which I thought was really good, followed on page 19 by another pre-crisis reference. Croc working in the circus where he used to battle crocodiles was referenced in one of his earliest appearances, circa Batman 357-358. So, more pre-crisis references. Mm. I like the costume on those two pages. Of Batman. For no reason, on those two pages, Batman's horns get bigger. Yeah. More of a Kelly Jones look. Are you? A f do you prefer Batman having big ears or little ears? It depends on the story. If it's a, I'm a shadow of the bat, I'm a mythical creature, then long ears mm. work. But if it's, I'm a detective, I solve crimes, then it's short ears. Right. Okay, so he just has different cows depending on what he's doing. Yeah. I prefer the long... I don't like them horribly long, like Ellie Jones does. Mm. I like them the length that they are in the first two Michael Keaton Batman movies. Yeah. I think that's a good length for the for the. They also keep for the changing worth of position on the cowl as well from story to story. Yeah, I mean, 
different artists draw it's like some people do draw them like horns don't they yeah, and whereas other people do draw straight them off the straight side, off the side of his head straight off the back yeah so it depends who's, who's drawing it um, yeah. all told I thought this was an excellent first issue hmm. very strong artwork ably assisted by a very strong script from Doug Mensch probably some of his best work so far in the coverage that we've done uh, Dick's a much more interesting character than Jean-Paul which I know is the point and his doubts about whether or not he can fill Bruce's cape makes for some solid drama Croc's a great villain he's taken down a little too easily yeah. at the end of this for my liking I don't really like the idea of um, Dick not wanting to be Batman so early on and yeah and that will lead us to a contradiction that I will mention as we go along mm. in that he starts making his peace with it and then he starts going back to being very doubtful of it. Yeah. Which doesn't really work. I think they should have kept that he was doubtful all the way through it. Mm. Because this isn't his calling. He doesn't want to be the Batman. Yeah. He's doing this as a favour, essentially. And the, there's mention of the Two-Face thing again. Um, which totally isn't setting anything up. Not at all. No. But I do wonder, when did Batman Forever come out? Because in Batman Forever, Two Face kills Dick Grayson's parents. Does it? That's the origin of like, Dick Grayson like in the that. Joker yeah, killed, killed Batman's parents. So in this, they don't quite go that far. But mm. Two Face is now Robin's adversary. Yeah. So I do wonder if that was just tying in with the the film. I think Batman Forever was ninety five, so it was just a bit later than this. But it will have been in production at this point. So maybe they were just setting that up. Um, Croc does get beaten a bit easily, although Dick does say he gets lucky. Which I thought was important because normally I wouldn't like Killer Croc being taken out this easily. Um, uh, but the Commissioner Gordon stuff's brilliant, where he notes that his relationship with Batman has changed and he's not entirely sure whether or not he can trust him anymore because he doesn't know who he'll be dealing with, mm. which I thought was really good. There's not really any cool adverts in this one. Saved by the Bell, the new class, which I never watched. And some other stuff that I never I watched. I know Saved by the Bell from Dying of the Death. Do you? Yeah. Why? The, the, the bit at the beginning where um, they go off a cliff and he jumps up and he grabs onto the oh, bell that, and the car goes Saved down. by the Bell. Yeah. yeah, well that's nothing to do with Saved by the Bell, the TV show. No, I know. <laughs> Which was before your time. Um, does that for The Flash, Terminal Velocity, 95 to 100, by Mark Webb. And Comics Colouring Demystified is the DC Universe page, which was really interesting. I think this is where I learned that YR means yellow, and there's different codes for different colours, yeah. which I thought was really quite cool. Do they all know, do they know that in their head, colourists? They'd have to, yeah. Yeah, that's very weird. And then Weird Science got a TV show, apparently, which I didn't know about, because, well, I didn't know about it, because it was yeah. in these comics, but I never watched it. Probably didn't get shown over here. Prodigal Part 2 appeared in Shadow of the Bat 32 which we're getting a bit boring when it comes to Brian Selfridge's covers isn't it? Yeah. is fantastic it's actually part of an interlinked cover with Shadow of the Bat 33 which would be part 6 of Prodigal so if you read in Prodigal then it's not an interlinking cover no. if you read in Shadow of the Bat but put together they are both gorgeous Yeah, it is a really good two part cover um, the Batman's doing his rooftop crouch on a gargoyle thing again with the moon hanging low in the night sky and Harvey Dent, the ventriloquist and Scarface are in the background. Put together with the other one, it's poster-worthy. Yeah. But we saw that about all the Brian Stephens. You don't really know covers. it's like Harvey Dent, though, really. It's like no, together. you don't know it's Harvey Dent until you put the two covers together, because on this, 
it's the Harvey Dent side and then the other cover it's the Too Faced side but they're really good yeah. when they join together uh, it dropped on September 20th 1994 and uh, like most sub- uh, subtitles like most Shadow of the Bat issues it has no subtitle it just says the Shadow of the Bat falls upon Prodigal part 2 which doesn't really scan very well but whatever uh, it was written by Alan Grant with art by Brett Blevins lettered by Todd Klein coloured by Adrienne Roy Scarface's men kidnapped Bobby, a salesman for Mr. Vetch, who took over Scarface's territory whilst they were in Arkham Asylum. Scarface's men kill Bobby's entourage and encourage him to tell them where the drop for the smack is taking place. Scarface is after retaking his business and he cuts the heroine with strychnine before continuing with the drop. At Blackgate, Two-Face is being transferred out for psychiatric evaluation on a prison barge full to bursting due to Arkham still being closed. However, a paperwork snafu due to overwork and underfunding leads Two-Face to walk out of court under the name Harvey Kent. After receiving Scarface's cut stash, junkies all over the city drop dead, leading, in, leading into Scarface's plan to ruin Vetch's rep and retake the city. Night falls. See what I did there? Yes, very good. Batman and Robin prepare to hit the streets when a news broadcast informs them of the dead junkies. Batman does some clicky-clicking on the Bat computer and comes up with data on Vetch and his operation, and that he runs a clean operation. It makes no sense to cut the heroin. So some more click-packing reveals that former drug runner in that vicinity, Scarface and the Ventriloquist. Dick has no experience of these two, so Robin fills him in as they speed into town. Scarface calls Vetch and makes a deal, and they arrange to meet at Scarface's old club. Batman and Robin also decide to check the club as it's their only lead, and of course they get lucky. The deal goes south as it's a ventriloquist double-cross. Batman and Robin take down the survivors, and Batman threatens one of them for Scarface's location. Across town, Commissioner Gordon examines the dead junkies, and muses that ordinarily he'd flip the bat signal on. But not tonight. Perhaps not any night if you cannot trust the Batman anymore. Scarface has gone for a face-to-face with Vetch at his penthouse. Batman and Robin arrive in time to save Vetch, but as the ventriloquist descends the fire escape, he hurls Scarface down to an aide who speeds away. Batman satisfies himself with capturing the ventriloquist and his cronies for now. The driver takes Scarface to a special location already prepared for such an eventuality, where he opens a safe deposit box to find a book. How to throw your voice. And, across town, Two-Face tosses his coin. Scarred side up. So Gotham City will burn. Whee! So we're kicking off into high gear. Did you like that? Whee! Yeah. I like this. Uh, I especially liked it because you think at this point Two-Face is going to be the villain for the entire 12 issues. Yeah. Nice piece of um, bait and switch though. Mm. Because he isn't which works in the story's favour. I do like on page one, Scarface wastes no time. Bam! Two in the face. Yeah. He's dead. He doesn't mess around, Scarface. Yeah, I, I love he's Scarface. Got, he's got no heart. Well, oh, if he only had a heart. Yeah. Um, I love the ventral because of Scarface. Have I mentioned that before? Yeah. When they're handled well, which by Alan Grant they always were, they are two fantastic villains. Even though they're comedy figures. Yeah, yeah that, that's the point. He's an old school gangster who still uses corkscrews to get people to talk. For me, he's the quintessential Batman adversary. Yeah. He's comical to look at to the point where you probably wouldn't take him seriously. The guy who's got his hand up his ass is meek and mild-mannered. <laughs> and he's a dummy, for God's sake. Yeah. But 
he's oh so dangerous. You're laughing is, at him until yeah, you yeah, your yeah, eye. Well, yeah, exactly, and then pops out your eyeball with it. <laughs> it's such a wonderful conceit that the ventriloquist pulls the strings, but Scarface is the dangerous one. I love well, his speech patterns as well. I, I like how they play around with you know who really is in yeah, control who's in charge here yeah. because take Scarface where the ventriloquist is oh it wasn't me I don't know what you're talking about and the end of this issue implies that Scarface on another guy yeah so is the doll possessed like Sid or is yeah that's like Sid from Buffett yeah. or is the ventriloquist just bat guano yeah. crazy <laughs> it's great isn't yeah. it he's a fantastic villain I love him like what colours is zebra yeah <laughs> Pretty much. Scarface on Ventriloquist. Yeah, it's such a shame the current creative folks don't seem to want to use him. He's far more interesting both visually and emotionally as a bad guy than yet another tedious serial killer. Oh, that's that's the next Scott Snyder Batman story arc. The big crossover. Who pulls the strings? I'd love it if Scott Snyder to bring back the Ventriloquist and Scarface. Yeah. As long as he did a good job with them. Hmm. And you know treated them properly yes they are comical and even in this story Dick doesn't take them seriously and it's Tim who has to say no yeah take them seriously because Dick's never met them Dick doesn't know who these guys are um, again page 3 has some excellent continuity with Nightfall which is also useful for letting us the reader know how little time has actually passed in terms of the lives of the character because Dent's up for um, his psychic evaluation Arkham is still destroyed mm. thanks to Bane at page four, I love Dick's line when he and Tim are cleaning the mansion about um, two philosophers talked all day. And, and Tim's like, what? Mm. And Dick says, the mess was still there in the morning. Which I thought was very profound. Yeah. I like that a great deal. Again, like you mentioned, the relationship between Tim and Dick is really good. Um, page six, there's a lovely little nod to history from Alan Grant Two-Face's original name from back in his first appearance in Detective Comics 66 from August 1942 was Harvey Kent Mm. but later changed to avoid confusion with Clark Kent because presumably in the DC Universe no one has the same surname oh no no no, only one Smith in the phone book (laughs) in the DC Universe and only one John Smith yeah. I would imagine in the entire DCU. Uh, page eight. Grant deftly avoids the expositional news network, TM Mike Baylor, and that whole cliche by the simple act of actually having a character in the story watch the news deliberately. Mm. Simple but effective. <laughs> You'd think other people have thought of that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Hey, wait a let's check the news before we go out. Instead of just walking past a window that happens to have the news on or swinging past a radio conveniently tuned to the news. Mark Wade panels. <laughs> it's not just Mark Wade, to be honest. Lots of people do that. It is it is cliche by this point. Uh, page nine, again, the relationship between Dick and Tim is awesome. Far more big brother, little brother than Bruce and Dick. Or Bruce and Tim. Uh, the relationship often reverses as here, where Dick isn't as up on the current Gotham crime beat as he used to be, so he lets Tim take the lead. It's hard to imagine control freak Bruce Wayne letting Robin take the lead on a case like this, but Dick has no problem yeah. with it because he knows who the ventriloquist and Scarface are. Hmm. And Dick's like, a ventriloquist and he's dummy? I've been out of Gotham too long. Well, this is the second time Dick's not heard of the bad guy. I mean, were Killer Croc and Scarface new at the time? Had he not heard of Killer Croc? 
No, I'm pretty sure he mentioned in the last one that who? And right, okay. Like, well, Killer Croc, see again, so the post-Crisis Origin can't work then. Because yeah. Robin, Dick Grayson Robin, was heavily involved in the Killer Croc storyline. In fact, he got Jason Todd's parents killed. Yeah. That was Dick Grayson's fault. So, obviously that storyline didn't pan out. I can't imagine he doesn't know who Killer Croc is. That seems a bit strange to me. Yeah. Surely Killer Croc would have made the news of some description. Maybe not, I don't know. I can understand him not knowing the ventriloquist and Scarface, because they're not A-list bad guys in the sense that the Joker goes on a killing spree, presumably makes the news. Yeah. I can't imagine the ventriloquist and Scarface are anything other than local news. So if he's not living in Gotham anymore, I can buy that he doesn't know who they are. But later on, he doesn't know who the Tallyman is. Yeah. But to be fair, Bruce wouldn't know who the Tallyman was. No one knew who the Tallyman was. Because that was Jean-Paul. Yeah. So, that kind of thing does work, I suppose. Page 19. We skip quite a lot in the middle of the story, but it's re- it's just really good. Take my word for it. Page 19. We get an excellent summarisation. I can't speak tonight, which is bad for people who do podcasts. Of Scarface's origin. Um, which is worth repeating in full. No ordinary dummy, sucker. They made me from the wood of the Blackgate Gallows. Dozens of killers and arsonists and maniacs and worse died hanging from me. Jerking and squirming and screaming their black souls went straight to hell. Which is a great origin. And I love... (laughs) The panel is just a scurry close-up of the little bugger's face. Yeah. And you look at that and then you go, yeah, maybe I would take him seriously. I love the ventriloquist in Scarface. Yeah. I really, really do. Um, I thought this was an excellent issue, all told. There's a lot going on. It's a simple plot, but Grant handles it wonderfully, whilst at the same time filling us in on all the usual subplots, as usual for Grant. The psychological aspects of the characters take centre stage with the wonderful and creepy Scarface ventriloquist relationship, again stealing the show from everyone else in the issue. The passive, rather nondescript ventriloquist and the over-the-top antics of Scarface are wonderfully counterpointed, and I just adore the interplay between the two of them. Loved especially Dick's assertion that these two, ridiculous though they may appear, need to be taken seriously, but... As with all of Grant's Shadow of the Bat stories, there are double meanings abound in a story about duality and doubles. Batman and Robin, Scarface and the Ventriloquist, and Waiting in the Wings, Two-Face. Adding Dick's doubts about even being Batman, and Gordon's doubts about Batman generally, and you have another top-notch issue from a top-notch writer. Not the biggest fan in the world of Blevins' art, but that's in no way meant to imply that it's bad. Mm. It's just not my taste. Yeah, it's just not my bag, man, personally. Um, Personal preference, that's all that is. It no way prevents me from enjoying a fantastic issue, particularly with the ending with the guy who gets the book on how to throw your voice. Yeah. Uh, There's not much in the way of different adverts this time. Superman's dead again. Running through triangle numbers. 44, it's John Bogdanov. Alright. I thought it looked like Eminem. Uh, it may be Stuart Immonen, actually, because he was drawing the Superman books for a time. You may be right, it may be Stuart Immonen. Um Batman Madness, a Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. Next year I want our pumpkin carved like that. Yeah. I think that would be really, really awesome. But no, we go for the smiling faces. Yeah, well, it's your sister, isn't it? And the Batman Adventures Annual Number 1, which was fantastic. Written by Paul Dini, with art by Bruce Tim, Klaus Janssen, Dandy Curl and Mike Parabek. John Byrne, Matt Wagner and Rick Burkett. 
It was a great issue. Absolutely fantastic. I've not asked you what you thought of it. Damn, I, I, I enjoyed it. Are you enjoying this all told? Um, so far. You've only read four of them. Some issues more than others. Well, that's the way it normally goes with these multi-part crossovers, isn't it? Um, you've not got to the, the one I consider to be the worst yet. And again, it's a Doug Mensch one much later on in the run where out of left field, Dick goes from accepting that he's Batman now to being suddenly, I don't want to be Batman! Well, my favourite out of the ones I've read is Robin. Is it? Yeah. All oh, right, not even the Chuck Dixon Detective comics. No, no. Which I think is awesome. I, I enjoyed this, but I thought... Robin was my favourite. Which is odd, because you've not liked Robin. Well, I'll tell you why I want to Oh, right, fair enough. Um, that masterful segue, which you'd think we were doing this professionally, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you? Um, means that the story continued in Detective Comics 679, out on the 27th of December 1994. The cover by Lee Weeks features the Batman tackling the rat catcher, a John Wagner, Alan Grant creation, although, to be fair, Wagner may not actually have been actively involved with the book at that point, who first appeared in Detective 585. Uh, I like Lee Weeks a great deal, uh, but this cover's very Mike Mignola. Yeah. And he even adopts Mignola's slightly tubbier Batman, who leaps from somewhere Massively onto the broad shoulders. Yeah, and a barrel feet. chest and tiny feet. Yeah. I love Lee Weeks' art, and the interior art is also by Lee Weeks, and he doesn't let me down, but there's just something off about that cover. Yeah. Isn't there? Um, it's not as dynamic as it could be. It's not awful. By any stretch of the imagination. We had uh, two years' worth of um, Kelly Jones, didn't we? <laughs> no, that was a bit pithy, wasn't it? Yeah, to be honest. The Vermin Factor was written by Chuck Nixon with art by Lee Weeks and Joe Rubenstein. Adrian Roy Culler, John Costanza, Letter, and Dan and Vincenzo, and Scott Peterson edited. Uh, do you know why Denny O'Neill didn't edit Detective Comics? Since he does all the others. Maybe he just didn't like it. Alright, fair enough. <laughs> uh, Otis Flanagan a.k.a. the rat catcher, stands before the judge with no chance for parole. No matter, he's made a little flute which, when blown, summons oodles and oodles of rats. Has he been let into the bloody prison shop again? <laughs> when is he going to learn? <sighs> Batman and Robin are, however, prepared and waiting for Otis as he makes a break, five stories from the floor. With the rats swarming them, Robin makes a play for the rat catcher, but stumbles, causing Batman to have to rescue him and rat catcher to escape. Dick asks Tim to research the rat catcher, but Tim learns that Two-Face has been released. He tells Dick, but also informs him that his dad, keen to spend time with him since his accident, has tickets to the tennis. Dick says go. He'll crawl around the sewers looking for rat catcher. And he knows. Just have to find it. On the way, the Batman visits Gordon, who knows immediately this is not Bruce. They discuss Two-Face and that he got out due to a paperwork mix-up. The relationship between the two is still frosty. The Batman hurtles through the subways on Bat-Train! Following the signal tracer planted on a rat by Harold, he locates Ratcatcher and interrupts his deep, meaningful conversation with the rats. He details some Bat-Guano-crazy plan to flood the sewer systems and bring the city to its knees, but Batman arrives and clocks him. He activates a device that drives the rats away and takes Ratcatcher back to jail. He admits that, while it's dangerous, the adversaries he's picked off so far are minor league. Two-Face, however, is A-list. Um, one of the great things about comics, or one of the things I love about comics, is that the story continues after the end credits would have rolled on a movie. The night story is over. And in a movie adaptation, and in the novel, 
and the audio adaptation. The credits have run despite many unanswered questions like whatever happened to the inmates that Bane released? How is Gotham City coping without Arkham? These questions would be glossed over in a single narrative, but comics, by their very nature, can address these issues and bring a certain verisimilitude to the events. Whilst the characters may exist in a very heightened narrative, by selling the little details the creators give a real, fully fleshed out world that makes us buy into the stories. The opening pages of this issue are just gorgeous. Weeks' art is simply stunning. There's something undeniably cool about Batman in the Rain. It just adds a, a visual impact to the page. Also worth noting here, Batman and Robin trying to be proactive in their dealings with crime rather than being reactive all the time. Particularly notable, there's no page numbers on this one. I hate the inconsistency of that. Because some of them have page numbers. Some of them don't. Page four has a great shot of Batman and Robin just standing on a rooftop. As they do. Waiting for something. Waiting for the rat catcher to do something. But it's the drawing of of Gotham in the background that's brilliant. Meanwhile, on the other side of Gotham, someone's being shot. Yeah. (laughs) While they're just hanging around waiting for rat catcher to be released. Rat catcher. He's C-list, isn't he? (laughs) If ever there was a, a sealist bad guy. Um, pages 7 through 10. Tim and Dick's relationship is brought to the fore again. It's hard to believe Bruce would have understood taking the night off. But Dick reminds Tim that having an overly protective father is better than having no yeah, father. I like that. I like how like, Bruce would have been, well, I kind of need you on patrol here. We kind of need to go out as Batman or Robin. Whereas Dick it's has like, been yeah, in that situation. So. Yeah, well, Dick's very much, like I just said, it's very much that you've got this problem and your dad's still around than the alternative and it's really good the banter between the the erstwhile dynamic duo and Harold who is still around is nicely played page number on page 8 it's inconsistent within the (laughs) issue because the shot of the Batcave on page 8 is really really good why is the Batcave never covered in bat crap yeah if loads of bats are flying around why is the Batcave so inconsistent well how big is it? That, that changes everything. The Batcave yeah, size changes depending on who's drawing it. Yeah. If it's Jim Lee, it's a gatefold sleeve. Yeah. If it's Dick Sprang, it all fits on one page, but it's tears, yeah. isn't it? So it depends on who's... It, it's also like inefficient as well. You have one bit where yeah. all the Batmobiles are on this little thing, but there's no bridge to get so it. So if somebody go. nukes that bit, he's lost all his Batmobiles. Yeah, and how does he drive it out anyway? <laughs> Best not to ask. And the cave's underground, so where does it lead? Well, there's, a, there's a way out. What was it more than where it was out of a waterfall? Yes. That well, was Batman Beyond. That was Batman... Was it Batman Beyond? Yeah, which makes sense, because he just flew out. Yeah, what he flies when, out. What happens... How did he get that? How did the Bruce Wayne get out, though, when he just had a normal car? I'm sure there's another one where it's under a waterfall. I'm trying to think now. Because in the TV show, the cave door opens and then shuts behind him. Mm. And then in, in the comics, one traditionally, them, it's just an exit and he has poison ivy signs everywhere. One of them was, um, there was like a mountain canyon thing outside and yeah. the, the part of the mountain was the bridge that went down. Yeah, that goes down because it's all fake. Yeah. Yeah. So there are different exits and entrances into the Batcave. Uh, the Batcave depiction is great. Yeah. Irrespective of whether or not it matches continuity with previous Batcaves. Um, page 11 and 12, again... Lee Weeks' Gordon is very David Mazzuccielli. 
especially when he's only lit by the single light in Gordon's office. And his Batman's very Frank Miller. And his Batman's very Frank Miller. Yes, well spotted. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't noticed that until you just pointed it out. Yeah, it's so obvious. Um, Gordon's smart. He notes that Dick is a few inches shorter and not as bulky as Bruce, in addition to his voice not being quite as... I thought Dick kind of annoyed me here with Gordon's just like, you're not the same one, how can I trust you? And Dick just didn't say, I'm Batman. You know? Yeah, as I'm long not, as you've got Batman. I'm not the nut job Batman. No. I'm, I'm decent Batman. Yeah. Or if he just said, you used to know me as Nightwing... I'm now Batman. Yeah, that would have worked. Yeah. Because then he would have said, well, where's Batman? And he said, he's just had to go away for a bit. Mm. That's all. I'm subbing. Yeah, that would have worked, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's not giving away who he is, though. No, he's just saying, I used to be Nightwing, I'm I'm covering for Batman. Because then Gordon could still trust him. Yeah. But that would remove a major dynamic from this storyline. So you've just killed an entire subplot with your logic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The shot's two-faced on page 13. He's very Neil Adams. So Lee Weeks is pulling his influences from uh, from all over town, which I, I, I quite liked a great deal. Um, page 17, bat train to Georgia and we'll leave you at the station. I like to uh, st- stay in the store rather than just be in some yeah. Gene Paul would use. Yeah, yeah, because he uses bat train quite a lot throughout Prodigal. Yeah. And uh, he actually mentions how cool it is because <laughs> yeah. the subway rocket gets through Gotham quicker than the car, mm. which I thought was brilliant. Really, really good. Um... Proving that Harold was a great addition to the mythos before Jeff Loeb casually murdered him in Hush. Yeah. Harold's gadgetry saves the day in an issue that pretty much plays to all of Dixon's strengths. A loony villain, a ridiculous scheme, great set pieces and some wonderful dialogue. It's filler Hmm. when taken in the the grand scheme of the whole storyline. But when the filler's this good, who gives a rat's ass? See what I did there? Uh, The art's exceptional throughout with Weeks delivering moody, dark artwork suiting the story. His influences are, um, I was going to say a bit obvious, but I completely missed the fragment, <laughs> so perhaps not that obvious. Uh, but all told, an excellent issue. I'm moving on to the last one today. So, sorry about that. We, we planned on doing six, I do apologise. Uh, Robin Eleven was part four of Prodigal, in which shipped on the 4th of October 1994. On the cover, Two-Face opens fire on our boy at point-blank range. Ignoring how the hell Robin isn't full of holes at this point, it's an excellent piece of work by Grummet and Chrysling. I presume you're going to disagree. Um. Because <laughs> it's just Tom Grummet, so I'm predisposed to liking it. Well, I do like Tom Grummet. Yeah, Tom Grummet's great. It's just... What? I don't know. Okay, fair enough. As a cover... You've really got to wonder how he's opening fire with that weapon, which looks like an automatic weapon that's blowing holes through Robin's cape. But not him. But not through Robin. I still think the bouncing off him. Yeah. It, mm. Artistically and anatomically, it's a great cover. Yeah. Realistically, Logically. it's just... Robin's dead meat there, isn't he? I do like how it's like he's jumped at... Two-Face, but the, the bullets have shot him back. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's it's a it's a stretching of credibility too far for me. Yeah. To be honest with you. Um, Grummet didn't do the interior artwork. No, sadly. Two in Every Crowd was written by Chuck Dixon and inked by Ray Crising, but Phil Jimenez 
did the artwork. Adrian Roy did the colours. Albert de Guzman did the letters. Jordan B. Garfinkel was the assistant editor. Danny O'Neill was the editor. I'd like to know why this was my favourite from the four issues. I'll tell you in a minute. Why does this one not say Batman created by Bob Kane? Uh, Batman's that, not in it. I thought... Oh, yeah, it's an issue of Robin, isn't it? Yeah. Well done. That'll, that would explain it. Yeah. Why was this your favourite issue? Because it's Phil Jimenez. Phil Jimenez. Yes. George Perez's boy. Yeah, I, I do Anyways. think that Phil Jimenez makes every title he works on so much better than it was when he wasn't on it. The artwork's good. It applies to everything. He was one of like the or one of the best artists on New X Men. He was one of the best artists on The Invisibles. I think he's. What's he doing now? Um, he's doing something for New Fifty Two, isn't he? He's doing Furry. Right. That's not New Fifty Two. Fables. Isn't I, it? I don't think he's doing anything for um, New Fifty Two. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Um, Robin, a.k.a. Tim Drake, awakens for a nightmare where he goes to school in his Robin costume. His dad, hearing the commotion, encourages him to join him in an early morning fishing trip. Across town, another early riser is Two-Face. Psychotherapy has given a name to his pain, and it is Robin. But destroying the little mook is also part of a larger plan to monkey with the Gotham computer systems. All ones and zeros, you see, allowing he and his team to play both sides against the middle. After school, Tim tries to make peace with Ariana, and through honesty and embarrassment, he manages to secure a date. That night, the crazy part of his life makes more sense, and Batman and Robin hit the streets. Two-Face, meanwhile, has hit a lawyer's ball, where the first thing he does is kill them all. (laughs) The police and Batman and Robin arrive and try and piece together Two-Face's pattern this time, and after hacking into the computer in the DA's office, they figure out where Two-Face is headed next. They arrive just in time to confront the one-man duo. I'm going to quote John Crichton from Farscape. I hate it when the bad guys quote Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, page two, Superman, Superman. Tim sleeps with Superman. Don't tell Lois. <laughs> uh, Tim sleeps in a Superman F-Shield t-shirt, which amused me. I wonder what Bruce thinks of that. Yeah. You think Bruce would be like, you sleep in a Superman shirt? What was it, Dick or Tim, who always looked up to Superman? Uh, Dick, because yeah. that's where the name Nick Nightwing originally came from, Nightwing yeah. and Flamebird. I don't how have, they, how have they explained Nightwing post New 52 or have they just not explained where he got his name from know. they just ignored that yeah alright okay fair enough when it sounds pretty cool why explain it yeah fair enough <laughs> <laughs> okay I can go with that um, there's some lovely touches on the first few pages as well Tim's got a bat emblem sticker in his locker yeah uh, he's also got sports and scantily clad girl posters on his walls in his uh, in his bedroom whereas I have comic covers yeah, well, you know, your mum would probably, well, maybe not your mum, but certainly your girlfriend probably wouldn't be too happy if you had naked girl pictures in your room. Adam would probably be made up. Yeah. Um, I'd gladly swap his nightmare for the going to school naked one. <laughs> I, I used to have dreams of certain girls coming to school naked when I was in school, but I don't recall having the dream that I went to school naked. Yeah. I had that one where you fall, and just before you hit the ground you wake up. I've had that one. Which freaked me the hell out. I used to have one um, that happened quite a bit where those little blue hooded na-na-na-na-na's from Spyro used to kick me around. <laughs> from Spyro? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. They used to terrify me. Right, okay, 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 okay. I'm so... As a child, you watched Jaws on repeat, yeah. and your favourite bit was the head falling out of the boat. Yeah. You watched Jurassic Park on repeat, yeah. and loved the bit where the guy gets eaten on the toilet. <laughs> but the blue meanies from Spyro gave you nightmares, <laughs> and the burr from Teletubbies gave you nightmares. Yeah. You were a freaky-ass child. <laughs> 
hated that telly. Where's the burr? You used to go, turn it off! <laughs> I didn't like the one where the, the things running in the house and turning all the lights on and off. <laughs> But Jurassic Park and Jaws is perfectly okay. That's because sharks and dinosaurs are cool. Well, dinosaurs are extinct, so you were never going to be getting killed by a dinosaur. Yes. And sharks... They're still terrified of going in the bath and the toilet, though, even though they're on the second floor <laughs> of how we live inland. And sharks, like, in the water. So if you don't want to be eaten by a shark, don't in the water. Yeah. I can see that. I, that's, that's fair enough. Um, the Huntress is on the cover of the Gotham Gazette, which I thought was a nice touch hmm. on one of the pages. Oh, yeah, there it is. Huntress at this point wasn't Batman and Catwoman's daughter anymore, was she? No. She was Helena Bertinelli or something. When did they change that? Because it was like... Post-crisis. Because she was in crisis. She's a, she was from Earth 2. She was Catwoman yeah. and Bruce Wayne's daughter. Helena Wayne. Mm. And then post-crisis, obviously they had to get rid of all that. She was Helena Bertinelli or Bertrelli or something like that. She was the son of a mobster's... Yeah, son of, son of a mobster. Daughter of a mobster. Yeah, and she was Batman thought her methods were far too rough Batman thought her methods were far the guy who just throws people off buildings and yeah. breaks their legs alright fair enough Batman uh, page 8 Ariana's mum stuffing Tim's face with food was hysterical mm. that was really good uh, page 15 Bullock and Montoya's banter with the homicide boys is really funny and was actually quite dark there's some quite black humour yeah. On page 15, if I can actually get that. About, um, where is it? After he's wasted all these lawyers, you won't know whether to book him or give him a medal. <laughs> Which I thought was, yeah, okay, fair enough. I can see cops making jokes like that. I'd like to see those two with a chalk line around him. You know we can get help on this one. He's probably already sneaking around. Bullock never was the biggest fan of Batman. My complaint about the artwork, I hate pointy cape Batman on his shoulders. Yeah. And um, the bat emblem's tiny. Mm. A little tiny bat emblem. I'm not overly fond of the costume. See, what's the art uh, I think is really good, especially his Two-Face. Yes, his Two-Face is brilliant. I, d- I don't like the armour um, costumes. Mm. Especially when it looks like the, the, the muscles in yeah. it are all moulded. Yeah, Batman's too muscular for Dick Grayson, isn't he? Yeah. Batman's... Bruce well, Wayne would look like that. It looks as though the costume... Yeah, it looks like the costumes are moulded. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Look at his legs as well. Mm. Batman's too muscular. But yeah, no fault in his Two-Face. His Two-Face is fantastic. And his cityscapes as well. Yeah. The brilliant shot on page 11. Although it does look like Batman's hovering in mid-air <laughs> rather than swooping in. But yeah, his Two-Face is brilliant. I love his black and white suit that he wore in the animated series as yeah. well. Is that a direct lift from the animated series, do you think? It could be. Because the animated series was on the air at this point. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic too, Fest. Uh, a fine, fine issue that once again gives us the problem that all fine initials give us, i.e. we don't have a lot to say. The Two-Face plot kicks into high gear and the story is a textbook example of a crossover in that every issue feels part of a whole rather than grafted on to sell more copies. Dixon again uses scant few pages to elaborate on subplots and delve into character in the art is excellent with a few exceptions. <laughs> That I've just mentioned. There's another art problem. Batman's head. head. Batman's head just disappears on page 17. Is one of those art problems. Uh, Jimenez is an excellent artist, and the majority of this issue is really good. I'm not fond of his Batman. Um, as we mentioned, the costume looks moulded, like the the suit from the films. Certainly, the first four movies, anyway. The chin and the lips look very like Michael Keaton, which is fine. But I really don't like the curled at the shoulder sh- uh, cape, and I think he. He, d- he does draw with too many defined muscle. Yes, 
Batman's leaner than Bruce, but Dick has more ripples than Raspberry. <laughs> um, all told, an excellent start to Prodigal. Mm. Two thirds with the chainsaws is hysterical. I, I just hear da 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 da. With an excellent cliffhanger ending. Again, the adverts are pretty much the same because these were all released in the same month. But Star Trek Deep Space Nine got a crossover courtesy of DC and Malibu. And the death and return of Superman got its trading cards. And Double Dragon, the movie, came out. I can't see anything notable about Double Dragon, the movie. Oh, Robert Patrick's in it. And Matt Dacassos, who's a martial artist, who took over from The Crow, didn't he? In one of The Crow movies. I can't see anything notable about this movie. Julia Nixon was in Babylon 5 and was Julia Nixon's soul at some point married to David soul who was Hutch in Starsky and Hutch and Alyssa Milano was in it but you know other than that I can't see it Guy Gardner Warrior and the aforementioned Star Trek Deep Space Nine crossover weird science is still being plugged uh, and that's going to have to wrap it up for this week due to Michael having to do homework mm-hmm. wasn't it Yes. Okay, we'll be back next week with part two of Prodigal. We'll see how it goes. We may do all of them in one show, but I wouldn't hold your breath. Michael's still quite busy. It's that time of year where coursework has to be in, isn't it, love? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Feel free to email in about anything you want, really. Yeah. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Goodbye. Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libsen, L I B S Y N dot com. So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey